God often identifies himself in the Old Testament like this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These men are the patriarchs of our faith. And last time we saw that the faith of Abraham was strong as he took his son up the mountain, took Isaac up the mountain, laid him on the wood, was ready to sacrifice him. But then the Lord intervened. God spared Isaac. They sacrificed the ram that was caught in the thicket. Substitution, the, the, the portrait of Christ as our substitution was there. But I want us to trace the story this morning. There's uh, a lot of backstory before we get where we're going today. So we got a, a good bit of uh, a story to hear and to learn and to think through. God spared Isaac and then reiterated his covenant promise to bless Abraham as the father of many nations. It was actually going to be through Isaac that God was going to bring this about. So Isaac later marries Rebekah, and that's a beautiful story. You ought to check it out. Like his parents, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah also have fertility issues. So for 20 years, they waited for a baby. Finally, Isaac prays fervently for his wife, Rebecca, and then she conceived and her uh, baby bump started to show and then she grew and grew and grew and grew (laughs) so much so she got kind of concerned about it. There was a lot going on in there. She began to pray and ask the Lord, what's going on here? And this is when the Lord answers and tells her that there's not one baby, but two. And that she's going to be the mother of not just two sons, but two nations. That there would be two nations coming through her children. The Lord tells her that these boys are going to be divided. One will be stronger than the other. But the younger son will actually lead the older. And the older will serve the younger. Now I wonder how Rebecca might have felt about this promise from God. Could you imagine being told that, you know, you're going to have these two boys, but they're going to they're going to fight. They're going to hate each other. They're going to be divided. And two nations are coming from these children. I'm sure it was comforting to know the babies would live, but concerning to think that they would be divided against each other. And this is where I want us to see a, a, a few big truths about the Lord before we dig into our text for the day. The first truth is this. God has a plan. God has a plan. And he was making known his plan to Rebecca before it came to pass, right? I mean, she's pregnant with these babies and God is telling her about her sons that are coming. He put those babies there. He had a plan for them and the nations that would come from them. God doesn't just make things up on the fly. He chose to bless Jacob, not Esau. He chose to bless the secondborn and not the firstborn. This is where we see God going against the grain of the traditions and sort of the the rules of men. God goes against that grain and we just have to say, well, God is God. He gets to make the rules, right? He's not bound to traditions or man's rules. Listen to what Isaiah 46.10 says. The Lord says this, I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. 
So God can make these kinds of bold statements because he's God and he is in control. You guys believe that? Like, really, do you believe God is in control? I think it's easy for us to affirm that when everything's kind of going smoothly, right? But when we're in more of a valley, when things are dark, when it's hard, when stuff is difficult, when things aren't going according to what we think they should be. It's actually in those moments we need this truth more than ever. To be reminded that God is in control. All through history, the patriarchs that we see, God is orchestrating the events to bring about his will. I want to teach us a word here. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this word down. It's this word providence. Providence. Providence is God's sovereign ability to work everyday stuff to accomplish his eternal purposes. It's his sovereign ability to work the everyday events of life to accomplish his purposes. Ephesians 1.11 says that the Lord is working all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. What's crazy is that God's providence actually includes our problems. His providence includes our problems. If you're in the room today and you're in the middle of a problem, I want to encourage you with that truth. God's providence, his working of all things according to his will actually includes your mess, your problem. Somehow in God's providence, the Lord uses our mess and even our sin to accomplish his purposes. And somehow he does it without bearing responsibility for it. Listen, God is not a sinner, but he will use your sin to do his will. We've seen this prove true, right, with Abraham and Sarah. Do you remember right after the Lord gave them the covenant of promise, Abraham and Sarah move move off and they they determine, look, every town we come into, um, Abraham tells Sarah, you're really pretty, like you're beautiful and the men are going to want you. And there's not many of us, it's just me and you. So when we come into a town, let's just lie and tell them you're my sister and not my wife. That way they won't kill me. And that's what they do. They come into um, Egyptian run towns and what happens is they lie and Sarah is taken into another man's bedroom. Meanwhile, God blesses Abraham with great wealth and possessions during all of that. Well, how does that work? Providence. God is providentially working even through their wickedness to accomplish his will. We see the same principle at work today through Jacob. But the most powerful example of this is at the cross of Jesus. Do you remember Peter's sermon at at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? In verse 23, Peter says these words. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So there's God's will. His plan was always to deliver his son up to be crucified. But then what does it say? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see the providence of God working through the sin and wickedness of of men? Surely Jesus's crucifixion is a terrible sin. Like God planned every detail of it. 
He even foretold a lot of it through his prophets. The psalm we read today was uh, quoting from Jesus, quoted it actually from the cross. And yet somehow it's carried out by the hands of lawless men. Here's the principle I want us to see that God is gloriously in control even when your life is not. Jacob's story that we'll see today is full of lying, cheating, betraying, manipulating. It's a total mess. And most of it is his fault. But the Lord worked his plan in spite of Jacob's sin and the sins of others. So let me lighten our load this morning with some good news. You ready? God's promises do not depend on your faithfulness. God is faithful to his promises. When these twin boys were born, Esau came out first and he's hairy and his skin is red. And so they name him Esau because that's what he looks like. Right. But as he's coming out, there's another baby holding onto his heel, right? grabbing hold of that heel. And that baby comes out and then they go, look at this kid. Right. And they name him Jacob, which means heel grabber. So if your name is Jacob, it doesn't mean strong tower. I'm sorry. It means heel grabber. And as Jacob went on to live his life, his name actually became a little deeper because that name gathered its meaning from Jacob's life. And it became it came to mean deceiver or supplanter. Jacob actually lived that way. And that was his name. And I wonder um, how we would feel about these names. We'll, we'll dig into this a little deeper as we go. For now, let's look. Jacob and Esau. Of the two boys, who did God choose? Jacob. God chose Jacob, not Esau. Again, we have to say God is God, right? We don't always understand what he does, but he has the prerogative to do what he does. When did God choose Jacob? Before he was born. Right when the boys were still in their mother's womb, they were wrestling, they were fighting. She prayed and the Lord said, I've chosen, I've chosen the younger. The older is going to serve the younger. What's, what should we take away from this? Well, some may say, well, God knew what kind of men they were going to be. He knew ahead of time. It was just his foreknowledge. He knew who they would be, so he chose accordingly. Well, here's the thing, though. Of course, God knew. But that conclusion would miss the whole point. God chose Jacob. And Jacob is an absolute disaster. He's a total failure, a misfit, a deceiver, a manipulator. He's a cheat, a liar, a stealer. It can't be that God looked ahead and goes, "Hmm, this kid is going to be great. It misses the whole point. Strife and scheming, that's what characterized Jacob's life. Jacob was always working an angle, trying to advance himself, manipulating, deceiving his way forward. 
One day Esau was uh, exhausted and hungry. He'd come in from the field. He'd been hunting. He'd been hunting apparently a long time. He's starving. He comes in and Jacob's there cooking some stew. And Esau comes over to his brother. He's like, man, give me some food, man. I'm starving. I'm about to die. And Jacob says, okay, I'll give you a bowl. Give me your birthright. Now, we don't get birthright, right? But this is the firstborn is going to inherit like two-thirds of his father's wealth. He's going he's to get the father's blessing and much of his wealth. And Jacob there has got his food. And he's like, yeah, I'll give you some food. Give me your birthright. Well, Jacob apparently was a convincing person. And Esau wasn't able to see past the moment of his starvation. He was like, look. I'm going to die anyway. What good's a birthright to a dead man? So you got to give me the bowl. What a terrible trade, right? This is an awful trade. I mean, talk about short-sightedness, you know? He can't even see beyond the moment to see a future that's going to be terrible. But this moment actually reveals the worst in both of these brothers. Esau is impulsive, short-sighted, he's foolish. And Jacob... He's conniving, he's selfish, self-elevating, manipulative. This isn't the only time, right? Later on, when Isaac, their father, is very old, the time had come for him to give his final blessings to Esau, his firstborn. And he said, here's what I want to do. I want to bless Esau, so uh, go make me a meal. I love, your, I love your meal when you go hunt something and kill it and prepare it. It's just wonderful. Go cook me a meal fresh. Well, Jacob and Rebekah go and devise a different plan. And Jacob goes and puts the fur of an animal on his arms. He puts on Esau's, Esau's clothes, tries to smell like him. He goes in and hides his voice. Isaac's gone blind at this point, so he doesn't know any better. And Jacob deceives his own father into blessing him instead of Esau. When Esau finds out about this, he's incredibly angry. He vows to kill his brother. In Genesis 27, 26, Esau says this. Is he not rightly named Jacob? You see that name coming up again. For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and now behold, he's taken away my blessing. So why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? It seems that Jacob would be the worst choice. Well, Romans 9, Paul explains that God chooses because of his mercy, not our merit. Now, hold on. There's a lot more there that we could get to. But the big principle is this. God chooses because of mercy. Not merit. Salvation and blessing is no one's birthright. Now hear me out. You may have been born to Christian parents, but unless you repent and trust Christ, you are not a Christian. And we could go down the list of all the things that people put their hope in. But what we learn, one thing we learn from Jacob and Esau is that salvation and blessing, it comes to no one automatically. It comes by the mercy of God. It's all by His mercy. So if you read closely, you'll see that all of our heroes in the faith, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and many more. All of them are miserable failures. Isn't it beautiful that that's who we're reading about and that's who has paved the way for our journey? Why is it beautiful? Because that's you and that's me. None of us deserve to walk with God. No, no, not many amens there, Willie, just me and you, brother. (laughs) None of us deserve God's favor. This is what makes Christianity so unique from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world looks to these men, lifts them up as a high example and says, if I can just be like them, let me work my way to God's blessing. But we should look at Jacob and see in many ways just the opposite. I need to be not like Jacob. I need to know that my place with God, my standing with God is by his mercy, not my merit. The way to the top with God is not through trusting your own efforts, but through trusting in His. And this is the point of this sermon series, is that Jesus is the true hero of every story. We're seeing the glory of God in spite of the failures of His people. And that's your story too. So after deceiving his father, Jacob ran far away. He met a girl named Rachel. Um, Rachel is his cousin, but it's, it was okay back then. Uh, it was not Alabama that they met, but, uh, Jacob arranged with her father to marry her after seven years of working for Laban. He agreed to work for Laban for those seven years. And then the day finally came for the big wedding day. They threw a party, um, Jacob apparently partied maybe a little too hard. I don't know how that went, but. That night they go to, you know, to wedding night and uh, this bride has been wearing her veil all night. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up and realizes it's the wrong sister. And the trickster, the deceiver himself has been deceived. Laban tricked Jacob into marrying Leah. Now, the Bible doesn't say she was ugly. But it does say this, that she had very dim eyes. I'm not sure what that means. But the contrast was there that Leah had dim eyes and Rachel was beautiful. That's that's what the story says. So Laban wanted to make sure that his daughter Leah had a husband. So he snuck her into the wedding at the last minute. And then Jacob says, what's the deal? And I said, I wanted to marry Rachel. Laban says, well, you, you can't. Seven more years. Work for me for seven more. And so that was the arrangement. He worked seven more years to marry Rachel. He got a taste of his own medicine. Meanwhile, God blessed Jacob's work tending Laban's flocks. Jacob's wealth is growing. So is his family. Laban is growing jealous. And the relationship which started Rocky is uh, deteriorating. God told Jacob, it's time to go home. 20 years have passed. And now Jacob is going to leave a very tumultuous situation. When Jacob leaves Laban, he kind of leaves in the middle of the night type of a situation. He leaves quickly. Three days pass and Laban's like, hey, where'd everybody go? And he ends up chasing Jacob a long way. 
Jacob is on his way back to his home country and he knows that there's somebody waiting for him there who said, I'm going to kill you. So here we find that Jacob is in a rock, in a hard place. He's in the middle of a lot of strife on either side. What's going to happen? Finally, we have a beautiful moment in Genesis 32. Would you find your place in Genesis 32 with me? Jacob finally prays. And it's a moment of deep despair. Jacob goes to God rather than to his own schemes. I wonder why is it that prayer seems to be such a last resort sometimes? We've tried everything else we can think of. Guess we ought to pray. Jacob's prayer is actually pretty awesome. We'll look at it in a minute. But as soon as he finished praying, he got up and went right back to scheming and planning. Hoping to appease his brother's anger, Jacob begins uh, sending presents, gifts of animals, big groups of animals. He says, let's send them out in waves. Like, send in this group of animals and tell him, um, bow down before him and say, you, you, my Lord, your brother is returning and this is a gift from him. And he sent five waves of gifts to his brother just to try to, you know, chill the anger a little bit. Jacob sends his whole family across the river and he waits alone. Needed to clear his head, needed to pray, to plan, to figure it out, maybe try to get some sleep. What's he going to do? It was definitely going to be a restless night. Would you stand to your feet as we read God's word? And I promise. Um, the rest will be brief, okay? Genesis 32 wants to read one of the most interesting passages in all the Bible. Let's pick it up in verse. Let's pick up in verse 22 if we can. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them. And sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he Blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Father, 
Um, We thank you for your word. We don't always understand it, but we ask that you open our eyes and our ears to hear from you today, to see some truth that may transform our lives. I pray, God, that um, if there be any of us that are in the middle of deep problems, difficulties, that we won't wait till the last resort to look up. But that maybe in this moment today, you will liberate someone, deliver someone from their difficulty. Lord, would you meet us there? Help us to see what you have for us in this scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. So who is Jacob? Jacob is the son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, He is the twin that God chose to fulfill his promise through. That's who Jacob is. Jacob is God's promise continued. That's who he is. But now in this scripture, one of the biggest questions, the scripture we just read, is who is this wrestling him? Who is this? The Bible says it's a man, right? And then at the end, Jacob says, this place is called Peniel, for I have seen who? God face to face. If we read in Hosea chapter 12, Hosea is actually going to read back. He's going to sort of retell the story a little bit. And he says that this is an angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord. Hmm. I think one of the biggest clues in this wrestling match is the turning point of the match. What what happens? What's the big turning point that leaves Jacob with a lasting effect? Whoever this is, this man, this angel, God, person, after a lot of wrestling and striving and just straining together, he reaches and touches Jacob's hip. And in the touch, Jacob's hip is broken. It's a kind of power that Jacob had not yet seen all night long. He'd been striving with this man, thinking that, you know, he's doing pretty well. And then suddenly, just before daybreak, the man decides this match is over. We're done wrestling. Touches Jacob's hip. And now it's broken. Knocked it out of joint, whatever exactly happened. Then this man renames Jacob, gives him a new name. Now, this is a strong move of of authority. Do you remember back in Genesis when God said, Adam, you have dominion over everything. Name it, name it, whatever you name the animals, that's its name. The act of naming something is a move of authority. So the fact that this man, this angel, whomever this is, is renaming a grown man. You're no longer going to go by the name Jacob. Your name is now Israel. This is a big move of authority and Jacob knew it. What's happening here? Who, Who is this? Who might this person be? I would submit to you, this is what's called a theophany. You might even say it's a Christophany. So this is where God himself comes 
in person, in, in some kind of a physical expression, visible physical expression, makes himself seen and known in a tangible way. It's theophany. It doesn't happen often, but I believe this is the pre-incarnate Jesus wrestling with Jacob. Actually, before his incarnation, the Son of God appears lots of times in the Old Testament. We didn't spend time with this last week, but do you remember who it was who spoke to Abraham in the moment he raised his knife about to kill his son? Do you remember who it was who spoke? What does the Bible say? The angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord actually said, for now I know that you trust me. Ooh, that's a, that's a statement. Who was that angel of the Lord? I would suggest to you that it was Christ. So now that we know who these two characters are and what's actually going on here, that Jacob is actually wrestling with Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. Let's dig into what happens for a minute. I want to go back to Jacob's prayer. If you look at it, it's in chapter 32, verse 9. Jacob prays. He's desperate. And he prays. I want to read this quickly. Chapter 32, verse 9. Oh, God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you've shown to your servant for with only my staff. I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, oh God, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. What's going on in this prayer? Here's here's the sort of the contents of Jacob's prayer. He prays God's command back to God. Essentially, he says, God, I'm just doing what you said to do. You told me to leave Laban and to come home. I'm coming home. Now what's going to happen? You you just brought me home to kill me. Lord, you said to do this and I'm trying to obey you. So he prays God's command. Then he prays God's grace. He says, essentially, you've made me who I am. What a great confession, right? Right. He said, when I when I left the first time I crossed this river, it was just me and my staff. But look at all of this now. You've made me who I am. Then he prays God's protection. He says, Lord, please deliver me. Deliver me. Essentially, Jacob is saying, I need your help. What a great transformation is beginning in Jacob's heart. The man who could manipulate his own way, who could scheme his own way to the top. That man is now at the bottom and he is desperately in need of help. Please deliver me, he said. And then lastly, he prays God's promise. Essentially, Jacob says, it's your own faithfulness that's on the line here, God. If you don't save my life, you'll be the liar. It's a bold promise. It's a bold way of praying. 
I think it's a great example for us to pray this way. But the next thing we notice, though, is that Jacob gets off his knees, so to speak, and he goes almost immediately back to um, plotting and scheming. He divides his camp. He sends Leah and her kids, believe it or not, he sends Leah and her kids to the front of the line and Rachel and her kid to the back. He sends animals ahead in waves as presents to Esau. He's he's now gone from prayer and depending on the Lord back to pride and trusting in himself. He's still working from fear, not faith. So after all this panic and preparation, the Bible says Jacob is alone. Nothing else to be done but just to wait and see. Not going to be any more sleeping that night. So he's just lying anxious. And here we have the Lord come to do some work on Jacob. Jacob had always depended on his ability to get it done, but not this time. Christ wrestles with Jacob all night long. What a beautiful picture of God's mercy. I want us to pick up four truths here about Jesus. Here they are. Jesus comes to us. Jacob had finally gotten himself alone. Just needed a few minutes of peace and quiet to get his head together, figure this thing out. And it's in that moment where Jacob is between two massive problems, has no idea what his solution is going to be. That Jesus shows up and starts putting him in a figure four or a headlock or something. (laughs) Jesus doesn't wait on you to figure it all out. He will meet you in your mess. Now that sounds all sweet. Until you realize. Jesus actually came to do some work on Jacob. That takes us to number two. Jesus comes to us. Jesus contends with us. He contends with us. This is what's really confusing about this text is that Jacob or Jesus is wrestling with Jacob. I mean, they're literally fighting. Why would Jesus want to go to battle against Jacob? I mean, Jacob had major conflict with Laban. He ran from him in fear. He's now headed back toward Esau. He's afraid of him as well. Surely what he needs right now is peace, rest, not more conflict. God is revealing to Jacob that the deepest conflict he has is not with any man, but with the Lord. And the deepest struggle and most needed struggle that Jacob needs to surrender to is not to any man, but to the Lord. Jesus makes the same truth known to us in his gospels. He says, don't fear man who can only kill the body. And he he presses into our fears and says the solution to your fear is better fear. Jesus teaches it's better not to fear men. You should fear God. And all along the way, Jacob, you've been doing this thing yourself with no regard for God at all. You lie, you cheat, you steal, you push your way through, you force your way to the top. No more. 
No more. Jacob cried out for deliverance. He thought God would come and deliver him from the problems he could see. But God came to deliver Jacob from a problem he didn't know he had. Christ wrestled with him all night. Jacob's holding his own. He thinks he's doing pretty well, fighting with everything in him. As the sun began to rise, Jacob refused to let him go unless he blessed him. This is such an interesting moment. You know, the giving of a blessing indicates that the person giving it is the superior, is the authority. They, they are giving from the greater to lesser. A blessing comes, always comes downward like that. So Jacob is affirming with the one he's wrestling. He's saying, I know you're greater than I am. Would you bless me? I'm not going to let go until you bless me. It's an, it's an acknowledgement. He knows he's less than this one he's wrestling. But he's still trying to force it. He's still saying, I'm not letting go until you do what I want. And the Lord went, And it was a moment of deep humility. The Lord touched his hip and broke it, put it out of joint, whatever it was. Suddenly, it was revealed who had all the power in this moment. This fight with the Lord isn't to destroy Jacob, but it is to bring him down. It is to bring him low. The Lord isn't against Jacob. He is for himself. And Jacob, Jacob has been forcing his way into blessing. And the Lord says, no, no, I give blessing. You don't take it. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For far too long, Jacob been shooting his baskets in the wrong goal. And the Lord is saying no more. So Jesus comes to us. Jesus contends with us. Thirdly, Jesus conquers us. The truth we see in this text is that only God can deliver you from you. Only God can deliver you from you. Jacob prayed for deliverance in Genesis 32, 11. He wanted deliverance from these guys. But Jesus presses in to deliver him from himself. Everywhere he went, there were major conflicts and problems. Maybe Jacob's problem wasn't out there. Maybe he was the common denominator and his problem was in here. And the truth is, that's true for every one of us. Your deepest problem is not out there. It's in here. And the only one who can conquer and deliver you is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be rescued from ourselves. Jacob prayed for this deliverance. It's answered with the struggle with the Lord. Esau may still be a threat, right? That, that threat is real. But the Lord who touched him, he can deal with that too. Brokenness is the way to true blessing. Do you know that? The blessing that Jacob wanted 
would only come through this kind of brokenness. Psalm 51, 17 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches the Beatitudes, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He brings us low so that all of our hope and all of our faith and all of our strength rests in him, not in ourselves. So lastly, Jesus changes us. He changes us. This angel, this this man, this God man, Jesus incarnate or pre-incarnate. He says to Jacob, what is your name? Now, this is an interesting question because we would assume if this is Christ, he knows the answer, right? He knows who he is. He knows his name. So why does he ask? And I would suggest that he's replaying a previous story. When Jacob went into his father on his deathbed and wanted the blessing from his father, his father, Isaac, said, who are you? What is your name? And Jacob, clothed in the skins and hair to pretend to be his brother, clothed in his brother's clothes, he lies. He, he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. And I think this is a replay of a previous story. Jacob previously tricked his own father. He leaned on his own, um, his own ability to advance himself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this myself. Jacob stole Esau's blessing through deception. So what would he do this time? No more deception. No more tricks. No more pretending. Jacob was at his wit's end. With the Lord, there is nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. There's a heaviness in Jacob's name. He had come to own what it meant, deceiver, right? And in this moment, I think there's more than just saying his name. It's an admission, a confession. My name is Jacob. There's a moment where I think he finally is acknowledging I don't deserve your blessing. And it's in that moment that Christ gives mercy. He says, not anymore, son. From now on, your name is Israel. And he says, it's because you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, wait a minute. Who won this fight? I mean, when I was a kid, you know, if you walked away with a black eye, and you walked away like this. You know, it's like, oh, man, did you get in a fight? You go, you should have seen him. <laughs> right, I mean, Jacob walks away from this battle and he looks to have lost. But the Lord says, you have prevailed. Hmm. And it is in our surrender that we find victory. So much more here, but Jacob names this place Peniel because he realized his greatest victory was seeing God. It was being with God. Church, that's our greatest victory. Our greatest success is being with God, having Christ. So it's on this foundation of your brokenness that God will rebuild. 
The promises of God can only be kept by God. And here that's exactly what he's doing. So how does this story play out? Israel, Jacob, now Israel would become the namesake for a nation. God's introducing a new people here. He's building a nation through one man and he's establishing a pattern. Check it out. The people of Israel will consistently go their own way. And the Lord will consistently contend with them and conquer them and redeem them by his mercy. Eventually, from the people of Israel, a new king would come. One like Jacob, but better. Jesus is the true and better Jacob. He would be the one to ultimately strive with God and with men and prevail. He too would be seriously wounded by the Lord. Jesus would not give up until the promised blessing of God, salvation, is fully secured. He would guarantee our salvation not by force, but through surrender. And like Israel, like Jacob, Jesus is the namesake for a new nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Church, listen, this is good news. Jesus has already gone before us to win the blessing and favor of God. We don't earn it. We don't force it. We don't manipulate our way into it. We come into it by his mercy. You come into favor and relationship with God through yielding to the Lord, not fighting him. Even when we sinners, faithless, scheming, deceiving, heel grabbing sinners. Jesus took the blow that we deserved. Is your hope in Christ alone? Or are you still manipulating your way forward? The Lord wants to rescue you from you. Jesus is the better Jacob. Are you trusting in him today? I want to encourage you. You can trust him.